Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I love dogs and cats and the people who care about them. Every week I talk with authors and experts to expand our understanding and appreciation of these pets who share our lives. To hear earlier episodes of this show and download podcasts of other informative pet talk radio shows that I co-host with top veterinarians and experts, please go to RadioPetLady.com. If you want to stay in the know when it comes to doing what's best for your pets, follow me on Facebook and Twitter. You'll find me at Tracy Hotchner. That's Tracy with an I-E. Have a pet-related question or comment? Post it on my page or tweet me. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. I also produce the philanthropic Dog Film Festival, sponsored by the Petco Foundation, which I take around the country, celebrating the love between dogs and their people while benefiting the animal welfare groups that bring them together. More information is at dogfilmfestival.com. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Waruva, a family-owned pet food company whose owners want to feed their own pets and yours with ingredients that are good enough for people to eat, using the same care, ingredients, and facilities where they make food for people. Named after their rescued kitties, W.E. for Webster, R.U. for Rudy, and D.A. for Vanessa, Waruva's owner, David Foreman, is passionate about good nutrition. Their new Caloric Harmony Dry Food for Dogs is formulated on the principle of how the body actually metabolizes food and the importance of high-quality protein in the diet. Not all calories are created equal. Our pets' bodies and ours digest Twinkies and chicken breasts quite differently. Look for Waruva wherever fine natural pet foods are sold. I have three really wonderful women who are going to be with me today. Liz Sinaitis is going to talk about dog mushing. Yes, you can do this right in New Jersey, my friends. Debbie Kanan will be here from the Bark Education, L.A. County District's District Attorney's Office, cruelty prosecution issues, how to teach people how to avoid cruelty and animals. And Liz Hueg is going to be here. She has a shelter intervention program down and over in Orange County to keep animals out of the Orange County, San Diego shelters. But Liz, oh, my God, you are the coolest person. <laughs> welcome, to the dog, welcome to Dog Talk and, and this amazing lifestyle you have. Talk about, I mean, the reason I'm having you here is because I think it's awesome what you do and is a great example of the ways in which people can have a great life with their dogs. But I also think you probably, this wouldn't be the first time you've inspired other people to say, really, I could have a dog and it could, it could compete with me and pull me around. So tell how you wound up in this funny, funny world. Well, um, me and my first husband decided we wanted to get a dog. I wanted a white shepherd, and he wanted a husky, and we ended up getting a husky, and the rest is history. Is that, um, is that, why, he's, is that why he's your first husband and not still your husband? <laughs> no, that's another long story. But anyway, um, you know, it's it's a wonderful breed of dog. It's not for everybody, and I always try to educate everybody about you know, a husky because they're right. so beautiful. Everybody comes up to me all the time. And yes. Oh, I want one. Well, 
they're not for everybody. Unfortunately, you know, it fit my lifestyle, but I, I tell people about that. But anyway, um, well, let, so let's I started wait, reading. Let's wait, and, let's wait and say, why is a Siberian Husky not for everybody? Everyone knows the glorious coat they have, their extraordinary, often blue, blue-white eyes. Not for everybody, Liz, because of the high drive to work, because they're not interested in being a house dog or like Mr. and Mrs. Obedience. What is the reason? Well, uh, there's several reasons. Uh, they um, are very high energy. They need a job. If you don't give them one, they might choose one like eating your couch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that's one reason. Uh, the second is uh, a lot of people think you can let them off leash when you're out at a park. No, you can't. You might right. never see your dog again. Yes. Um, and they do shed an awful lot. <laughs> <laughs> All the birds in my neighborhood have nice fur-lined nests. Oh, that's adorable. That's so <laughs> cute. Now, you belong, you live in Pennsylvania. You belong to the Pennsylvania Sled Dog Club, right? Yes. You started I, out with a skateboard with this first husky. Was that really well, the truth? Yes, it was a bad idea, <laughs> but it, it's a it's a fun story. Um, my first husky, I started reading up on him, and I said, "Yeah, that sounds cool, running dogs and this and that." So I was like, I had, you know, I was an avid skateboarder at the time, and I I took my dog to the park with with a leash, and you know, I was going down the paved trail path, and and uh, it was real fun until I hit a rock and the skateboard stopped dead, and I went flying, but I didn't let go of the leash, so my dog did not get away from me that was good. um and <laughs> yeah and i often wonder if that's why i had to get my hip replaced this this past uh year but i'm Highly you possible. know re recovered and i'm back to mushing my my um orthopedic surgeon is into uh fox hunting and stuff like that so he knew how how important it was for me to be able to get back to the, doing the sport that i love to do so what you did after the skateboard was get a gig a gig that sounds yes. like something out of a Victorian novel with a beautiful dapple gray horse, but it's a three-wheeled <laughs> cart and sled. What is that? Well, it's a um, it's a three-wheeled cart. Uh, the one that I had back, and it was made in the 70s by somebody who used to um, make horse sulkies. Um, I have since gotten a more updated version of of these, and they they get for like they can go to three to four thousand dollars. They're called um, gigs or carts. Um, they they sometimes have suspension on them and that type of thing. But that allows you to do dry land racing, um, which you know we do dry land and snow races. The dry land is on wheeled carts. Um, that's we 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 do in the pine barrens and so forth. Wow. That's possible for anybody in the Pennsylvania, New England, New York, New Jersey area where where there's a club doing this and you have paths that are already cut, I suppose, I hope. Uh, yes, we um, when we do races um, in the Pine Barrens, it's it's an excellent trail system. Uh, we need a cordon off like uh, the race course we're going to use for that day. And we have people at the intersections uh, for safety purposes for mostly the the dogs, not the people. We, we know we're we're on our own, <laughs> but yeah, we we, we make sure that the dogs are well, you know, well taken care of, um, and that type of thing. But we also do uh, scooter racing, which I just got a scooter uh, that I take my two 14-year-old dogs out on just for fun. They're retired from my team, but uh, they still love to do it, and they're still in great shape. I just take them out on a dirt trail, you know, from like a mile up and mile back, and, and they just love life doing it. 
What does a scooter look like? We all think of a scooter being that thing where you put your left foot and your right foot paddles along. Is that, that's not yep. what a scooter is, is it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Really? But it's made, <laughs> they, uh, it's made with, a, with a harness built in for dogs? No, I actually bought one off of uh, Craigslist, I think it was, and my husband modified it to have a uh, line attached to the end of it, and I attached my two-dog line to it, and I've been having fun just going to the local parks doing with, you know, that. You can just go to the local park and you know, with one or two dogs, and you can have a great time. Well, is everyone astonished when they see a woman on dry land with Siberian huskies pulling her on a scooter? Yes. Do people stop and take photos and, and ooh and ah? <laughs> yes, of course. I was like, hey, that's a great idea. It's better than walking six dogs at a time. You know, like you can do two at a time. And, well, and, you, uh, used people... to, you used to have a six-dog team. That must have been quite a bit of training and management and shedding and feeding and poop cleaning uh, up and exercising how was that your that wasn't your full time this is obviously an avocation not a vocation i'm thinking this is all for fun right yes it is it is for fun um i'm a graphic designer and i i uh, work in a newspaper uh currently putting together a newspaper and that type of thing um but it's 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 mainly a hobby for me it, i don't make a lot of money at it it's it's just something I do for fun, and it does um, open up a lot of doors for me. Because you know, when you say you race sled dogs, they're like people are like, "Wow!" You yes. know, and and there's actually a lot more of us that do this than you would imagine. But the average person doesn't realize that, and they're just astonished that you know, "Wow, you you don't do that in Alaska?" <laughs> right. We all think of it as being this very deep snow, frigid, freezing, frosty breath, you know, kind of a sport. And here you are doing it in the great Northeast on in all sorts of conditions. One of the the movies that was in the Dog Film Festival the second year last year in New York and is going to start traveling the country soon was about all the various dog sports. And they were mostly in European countries. And I'm sure you must know this, that there's very important like marathon level competitions all over Europe in which they have yes. one dog, two dogs, four dogs, every imaginable wheeled and and sort of uh, sledded contraption. Is this something that is more prolific in Europe or, or are there just as many people here and we're just a bigger country so we haven't noticed you? Um, I haven't been to Europe a whole lot, but, uh, I, you know, I just know of, you know, my local clubs that do it. We have a club in Jersey and my, my Pennsylvania, uh, sled dog club that I belong to. And I, I served as a, uh, board member and so forth, um, an organizer for different events. Um, but for, for us, I'm in it at like a lower level, um, not real high level and, it's. I just do it um, for fun, and I've met so many amazing people through the sport, through the clubs, um, and they're, they're some of my best friends that I've I've came across. You know, I, that I I wouldn't have met if it wasn't for this wonderful hobby. Well, you've self-selected a pretty intense, fantastic, and niche, uh, you know, fun occupation. So you would all have a lot in common without having anything in common other than the fact that you have <laughs> teams of dogs that you hook up to all kinds of contraptions. 
and goes zooming around. It sounds like a young person's sport, but by the same token, maybe it's something that people can even take up in middle life, is it? Oh, yes. Um, uh, one of my best friends grew up on a dog sled, um, and her, da- her and her dad go training together. Her dad is 75, I believe, right now. And he runs, he's running a six-dog team. He has younger dogs wow. than I do right now. Yeah, he's amazing. And, um, and, and her, she has three young kids now who have uh, been given a specially built small little sled. Uh, oh, that my are, goodness. They're, they're, they're try starting to, in the sport themselves. So uh, we're, we're bringing up some new monsters there. <laughs> now, what about the, the dogs themselves in the Iditarod and similar high-intensity, freezing-cold-weather um, competitions. They rarely, as I understand it, because I've interviewed a few of them, they've written a few books, and now they've made a few movies, they rarely use a purebred Siberian Husky. They have their own mixed breed that they secret, it's like a secret sauce of genes, and they're breeding them <laughs> well, and you know, only sharing them amongst each other. What is it in, in, a, in a more... Um, in a more club atmosphere, is does everyone have a purebred dog, and are they all huskies? No, uh, uh, the mo- the most a lot of people get into the sport because they get a husky as a pet, and then they have they find a need for speed. I'm okay with the speed the huskies go. I mean, we start out about 30 miles an hour sometimes, and then settle oh my down. God, yeah, wow. it's, it can be. It's a little scary at times when you first take off, but. Um, they go fast enough for me, but a lot of people get into it because they they got a husky, and then they go to um, what's called Alaskans. Um, they're a mixed breed. Um, that people will you know breed hounds and huskies and um, pointers together uh, yes. for dogs. You know they're, they're long legged. Uh, there's good and bad point, points about uh, those breeds. Uh, they're they're great. Like you could probably let them off the leash and they don't run away. That's a great thing about them. Um, but there's certain things about that breed that you know uh, they don't have the coat of the husky. So you have to you know be careful with them in in extremely cold temperatures. They have to wear coats. Um, their feet are not as good as the huskies and and that type of thing. So there's there's trade offs. Um, and and the the quote that we have is you got to like what you feed i like huskies i feed huskies <laughs> <laughs> because it's a lot of money and a lot of trouble to keep these dogs yes. really fit i mean massive amounts of protein right and high quality fats um it, i i feed um it's it's a food that's not uh, readily available at your local store i have it shipped to me on a pallet you know get like like 500 dollars worth at a time shipped to my house and some other people uh, from the club buy from me. It's a very good food. It's called Animet. Oh, yes. Um, I've heard was, of that. Is it out of Canada? Um, well, actually, the, the Rob Downey is a member of our, our club, and he developed that food. Um, wow. He's, he's a, um, I think, Penn State animal nutritionist, and he developed that food um, for especially for um, – you know, our, our breed of dogs, you know, that need different levels of protein throughout the year. During the, the, the racing season, we, he, we feed a higher level uh, protein feed uh, with that food. And then, when it, like, after the racing season, we drop down to a different low, lower percentage protein food. So you, it, there really is quite a science to it. When you're, when you're dealing with animal athletes, you're, you're treating oh, yes. them as athletes. Do you do things like acupuncture, chiropractic? 
Do, do you have those kind of modalities to keep them fit and sound? Uh, no, I haven't had to use any of that. Uh, my dogs have uh, been very good. I I had one a rescue dog that lived to seventeen. It was a husky. Wow. Uh, yeah, and I have two fourteen year olds that are I mean in fantastic shape right now. Every time I go to my vet, they just are amazed at these two dogs and and how fit they are. Right. They just um, I don't overfeed them. That that's the biggest part I think with so many huskies uh people overfeed them and that's not good for them it, you know and um it it, it just it, it's not good for the dog and and they'll live a lot longer if you keep them leaner keep them lean. yeah that's that's the message to all of us and it's a hard one to to <laughs> believe in when you just have the couch potato dog but when you have a competitor and you want to keep their joints safe and you want them to be able to have good you know, oxygenation, right? And run and have yep. their maximum performance. You can't be too liberal with, with the snacks or, or with food that isn't really meeting their needs. It's, it's really cool to think that somebody could get into this, as you said, even with a, there's many, many Siberian Huskies for adoption. For the oh, reason yes, you said, yes. people buy the cutest looking puppy in the world with those big blue eyes, and they have no clue how to give them the proper life. So, you could have you could be like a, a NASCAR racer who gets a secondhand car, right? But you can yep. still be a really good competitor. Exactly. Uh, my my first team, I had um, after I had bought my first husky, I adopted uh, two dogs from the rescue, and they were great. Um, you know, and, and they they love you. They they know you you gave them they a second do, chance. They do, right? I know it's and, crazy. And they give you so much back, so much more back than then, you know, you get, you know, you give them, uh, it's, it's, it's a wonderful experience and, um, you can do so much fun things with them. It's, it's, it's an awesome, you know, trade off to, you know, to adopt a dog and to be able to do something fun with them. It really is terrific. And the Pennsylvania sled dog club is the name of one of your clubs that people can find online. What's the name of the New Jersey club? Uh, the new, the New Jersey Sands club. New Jersey Sands Club. So if anybody's curious, can we also, people that might be in the Pennsylvania, New Jersey area, come and watch one of the competitions? Do you have it on the website or somewhere when your next race is going to be? It's got to be a hoot to watch it happening. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, and we, we welcome uh, people to come and uh, see the race. And also we, um, we ask, you know, if you want to volunteer at the race, it's oh, an awesome opportunity, awesome opportunity to be what we call trail help. What we do is we set up a course and then, um, for the four dog course, you know, we need somebody at the first turn, the second turn, the third turn. And, and all you do is mainly stand there and, you know, help, um, you know, guide, guide the team around. If, if, if the, the driver needs help or something like that, they might ask you to, can you hold this dog while you untang? He got on, unt- he got tangled, that kind of thing. So you get to see the dogs out in the trail, you know, you're instead basically of just coming and leaving. You're a, you're a yeah. Yeah. Hands on animals. Yeah. It's great. It sounds like a really fun thing for people to, to get their feet wet and to, to at least to be a helper, a spectator would be great. Well, Liz, keep up the great work. I hope these dogs live to 100. They certainly have a lifestyle <laughs> that's right up their alley. And uh, it's wonderful to have met you and delighted to have you inspire other people to become mushers. What fun. Yeah. Yeah. Just look us up on the Pennsylvania Sled Dog Club if anybody's interested in, you know, getting involved. We're all very friendly. 
Um, you, you have one dog, you want to hook them up in a team of experienced dogs, see how they do. That's I mean, it's it's an awesome thing to do, especially we have a summer camp out the first week oh. in August, um, and that's that's a great way of coming and get, and learning and getting involved. You can bring a dog. We'll, we'll have harnesses and everything for you if oh you're my interested. God, that sounds great. I'm going to make sure that I have a link to that, that camp in the first week of August. Thank you so much, Liz. Keep up the good work and have a blast. We'll talk All again right, after thank you. Thanks Bye-bye. for having me on. All right. Bye-bye. I'll be right back with Debbie Canan and Bark Education. This show is brought to you by Halo Holistic Natural Dog and Cat Foods, which are made only with whole meats, never any rendered meat meals like chicken meal or byproduct meal. Dogs love meat and cats are obligate carnivores. So optimum nutrition starts with meat that their bodies can best utilize. With responsibly sourced ingredients slow-cooked in small batches, independent tests have shown Halo foods are highly digestible so your pet's bodies can absorb the nutrients. When you feed your pet Halo food, at the same time you'll be nourishing less fortunate shelter pets because for every purchase you make, Halo gives a bowl of food to shelters. I am back with Deborah Kanan, who's the executive director of this really interesting course that people who have been convicted of animal cruelty have to take, which is kind of a daunting thought. Deborah, welcome to the show. I know that for 20 years you were a prosecutor for the L.A. County District Attorney's Office, nine of which were spent supervising the office's Animal Cruelty Prosecution Division. You must have had a pretty harsh look at, at the human race. I, I actually did. And even prior to my uh, serving the last nine years overseeing the Animal Cruelty Division, I served on an L.A. City Commission where I oversaw our animal control services, and I also served as Assistant General Manager of Animal Control. So to all wow. of those, I, um, yes, I actually saw and uh, a lot of animal cruelty cases, some of which actually people might not even think of being cruelty or abuse, but under most laws, in fact, all laws in all of the country, um, such as neglect or even tethering and failure to groom, which could eventually lead to charges. So yes, I I saw a lot and that is why I saw that there was a huge need for the type of course that my nonprofit developed and recently released. It's It's a really, really interesting idea. Those of us that sort of look through the glass at people that tethering is such a pleasant word for chaining your dog 24 hours a day on an eight-foot chain with or without a doghouse. I live in Vermont, so the laws here are unfortunately a little bit back in the dark ages about those things. I mean, the fact that that's allowed, the length of the chain is what's considered, and the uh, the shelter from the storm is actually, I don't think, even in the in the in the rule book here, um, it, which is sort of amazing to imagine. We don't think about those people that are charged with and or convicted of an animal abuse case. What happens to them? You know, we sort of know that violent offenders or domestic abuse people are forced to go through some kind of anger management. What have you created for people who are convicted or charged with animal cruelty? And, and how is it applied to them? Is it forced or is it, is it voluntary? Okay, so as you mentioned, we have uh, usual tools that law enforcement and the criminal justice system and animal control uses. And that's things like fines and restitution and jail and prison. So in addition to that, though, you know, we always say that if somebody goes to jail or prison, they're not going to change their fundamental views and understanding of animals' needs and their feelings or or their lack of understanding of animals' feelings. 
that is not going to change by using our usual tools. And so for years, I've been contacted by prosecutors all throughout the country, and I myself have been looking for something that we could kind of incorporate as part of a sentence or as part of a diversion program. That's for people who, instead of actually being charged or instead of being convicted, they would do certain things in order to hopefully change their behavior in the future. So there really was nothing, especially nothing on a national level, which is why, you know, I saw one day somebody taking a traffic school and I realized that it's that hard. really was the best way to go about doing this, especially in this day and age of technology yes. and having a brick and mortar class every, you know, in every county or every city throughout the country. That's just not feasible. Right. So this online course, as I said, it's very similar to an online traffic school. And it's something that prosecutors, judges, defense attorneys, animal control officers, um, school officials, because this is a by referral only course. Um, that they can actually use now as a phenomenal resource. And it could be instead of jail or prison, or it could be in addition to. And this is definitely educational only, so it's not to replace mental health or drug addiction counseling or, um, or even, as I said, jail or prison. But the whole the bottom line, Tracy, is, again, if we want, if we have any chance of offenders, people who have mistreated animals, treating animals differently in the future, then we have to teach them not only what they're required as owners and what the law requires of them as owners to do for their animals, but why. Because once somebody understands the why behind certain things, hopefully they will be able then to go on and use their judgment. And for example, let's take tethering. So our course, um, which is called Benchmark Animal Rehabilitative Curriculum, or BARC for short, our course covers tethering. And in the tethering section, we not only talk about the fact that in many places it really is illegal, but we tell them why. Why is this bad for the animal? For example, a tethered animal can wrap the chain around its neck, and I actually saw several cases like this, and choke itself. Oh, it can jump onto a stationary object and jump and hang itself. It can um, be vulnerable to attacks either by humans or other animals, and it's tethered so it has no chance to get away or defend itself. Right. Without any elements and it can't get under shade or under something protected from the rain. So in this course, which again is extremely innovative, we produce 26 original videos. So it's not just text. It combines articles to read and videos to watch, little news clips to talk about things that have happened. People will start to understand, A, that animals are capable of experiencing emotional and physical pain and suffering. Again, what the law requires of them, and more importantly, why they should be doing the right thing. So they have to be referred to the course. Um, it's, again, by referral only. And we are receiving referrals typically from judges, prosecutors, animal control, and defense attorneys to incorporate as part of a term and condition of either probation or, um, as I said, diversion. How did you get the word out to them? You were obviously very, very high-placed in the L.A. County District Attorney's Office, which is a powerful organ of, of justice in the law, did, did you, when embarking on creating this animal welfare nonprofit and the course, turn to, I don't know, the District Attorney's Office in the biggest 25 cities in the country? Because if they didn't know it existed, they wouldn't know how to divert someone to it. How did you get these other judges and prosecutors to, to learn what you created? Well, as I said, we're findable now um, on the Internet. Prosecutors, as I said, have been searching for years for something um, like this. 
So like that, we are speaking on speaking at conferences, I'm doing trainings, but it really is, especially in this day and age where rehabilitation and, um, you know, alternative sentencing and restorative justice, those are common concepts that are becoming extremely popular in the criminal justice system, not just when it comes to animal cruelty, um, but it is extremely innovative in the realm of animal cruelty right now, because as I said, you know, there's a lot about drug offenses and domestic violence and that type of thing. But until now, there's really been nothing, um, certainly nothing like bark before. But people are looking for an alternative, understanding and knowing that, A, jails are extremely overcrowded, regardless of what state you're in. Right. And B, locking somebody up, as I said, some people need to be locked up. There's no question about it. But then we have to think, what next? What are we going to do to create some type of fundamental change? so that they act differently because they're going to get out. They're going to be around animals again. You can only prohibit people from owning or having contact with animals for so long. They're going to. And you can't enforce it anyway. If they have the desire to impose their will on or be superior to or domineering over an animal, they're going to find an animal to do it to. Uh, That goes without saying. Being told you can't have one again isn't really a solution. I know with the dog fighting um, rings situations inner cities where dog fighting is has been a part of the culture that there have been interventions with youth at risk youth at risk for many things not the least of which is having dogs fight each other and that they're able to but it i I don't know if it will work with an online course because they haven't done anything bad yet necessarily they're spectators in their own community but the understanding that those animals have feelings and want to attach to you and want to have a relationship with you seems to be the big turnaround. So that having an animal with a big chain around its neck and scars and having its ears cut off is no longer, one hopes, less and less is a badge of some kind of honor. I wonder whether Bark addresses dog fighting in particular. Absolutely. We actually have a very robust section on both dogfighting and on cockfighting. And you, you make several excellent observations. What we do in there is we, we actually talk about, obviously, the illegality of it because both of those quote-unquote sports are illegal in every single state. But we also talk, we, we have a section called myth busting, where we go through the common myths when it comes to dogfighting and cockfighting, such as, you know, the animals enjoy it, they were born right. to do it, nobody's right. hurt. Um, and we bust every single one of those myths. And we also go on to talk about the impact, both through a video that we created and an excellent article that interviews a former dogfighter. And he talks about that aha moment that he had when he realized that this quote-unquote sport was for the birds. And we talk about what type of impact does illegal animal fighting have, you know, if you don't care about the animals, that it has on you yourself without you even realizing it, the people that watch it, the people, your neighbors, you know, that have to put up with everything that goes on with dogfighting in their neighborhood and cockfighting. So we try to hit it from all angles. And the most important thing that we try to do in this course also is really instill empathy. We have several quizzes and um, scenarios where the student is asked to put themselves in the shoes of the animal. Nice. And then talk about what they would have wanted the human to do better or differently for them. So, again, it's about attacking it from every single angle that we possibly can to instill empathy and get them to really start thinking about how the animal felt. And for those who don't care about either one of those things, we talk about what the legal consequences could be for um, getting caught at doing any, any, any of the uh, different forms of animal cruelty. 
So because this is aimed only at perpetrators who already are in the Huskow or on their way to the Huskow for doing it, <laughs> sounds like it would be a fantastic preventive tool. And wouldn't it be, I'm sure many people have suggested this, that getting that program into communities where there is dog fighting or there is pet ownership that is not mindful of the emotional and physical needs of dogs would be great. Has there been any thought about that? Yeah, that's actually, you know, the next iteration that we'd like to think about doing. But BARC is, our tagline is an online animal cruelty prevention and education course. Right. So people can be referred to BARC who have not necessarily been convicted yet or even charged yet. It's anybody who gets on the radar of animal control officers, for example. Out in the field, they see a lot of things that might not rise to the level of a crime, but they believe firmly that this person would benefit so much more with, from education rather than citing them or charging them. So a lot of them are using this as kind of a, a first preventive, you know, um, offense. And they can always go back and cite and charge later. But at least they want to give somebody a shot saying, hey, listen, you know, I'm out here. It looks like you got a lot of roosters, sir. And I know what you're telling me. <laughs> they're all your pets. Yeah. Yeah, but, right. you know, I have a different feeling, so we're going to ask you to take this course. And then, you know, the person can't say that they didn't know after they take the course. Well, I, I but, guess um, really what I'm yeah. saying is that when, when we were all kids back in the dark, dark ages, when they got a projector out and projected it on like the blackboard, they probably don't even have blackboards anymore. Um, and they showed films about, uh, you know, smoking. They're also anti-sex, you know, don't have premarital sex and you can get pregnant or get venereal disease or something. But then there was also the one where they always showed that lung of some poor rat, this sort of charcoal lung, and it was supposed to be a deterrent to smoking. I don't know how well it worked, but it stays with you forever. So mm -hmm. I'm just wondering if on a classroom level, if you have, because the next generation is always the one to really make a big shift, rather than going perpetrator by perpetrator, which is great that you've created it, if there would be a way to create some kind of a sea change in thinking so that you reach people before they're ever involved, but what they're around it, they're eight, they're nine, they're 10, they're 11, and they're impressionable. And it's very easy to get kids that age to empathize with animals if they're led in that direction. Those of us lucky enough to you know, read books like Charlotte's Web and so forth, or you know, even Christopher Robin, we already are sensitized, but for kids that don't have that privilege of, of that kind of education, sort of emotional education, it sounds like something that would be great to be able to get into schools. I, I know that's really not where you're headed, but prevention seems to me would work before somebody even goes down that path so that when they see other people doing harm, unless their own life is in jeopardy for telling them to knock it off, they can be maybe that voice that stands up for the animals. No, I totally agree. Uh, humane education is absolutely, absolutely necessary. Uh, the reason that we created BARC was because this fills a huge void. I mean, right now we know that certain people who are our students have already shown a propensity for doing something to animals. And right. the idea would be obviously to catch them before they have. But now we have people who we know for a fact, you know, have shown a disregard for animals' feelings and a complete lack of understanding of what they need. So this is kind of our starting point because, as I said, Tracy, right now, you've got thousands of people all over the country, probably tens of thousands, who are on somebody's radar for having done something or shown a propensity for doing something. So it's those people right now that we're right. targeting and it's right. that void that we're filling right now. 
That so, makes a um, lot of sense. Because there is a huge they've, need. Yeah, they've already tipped over onto the dark side. How do we make sure that they <laughs> saw that film? I mean, you can't shackle them to the computer. Make sure they read the article and looked at the video and answered the quiz. Uh, how, how do you make sure of that? Okay, well, uh, BARC has something extremely innovative and unique, and that is advanced facial recognition technology. Wow. So when the person logs in for the very first time, um, they take a series of photos, and then throughout, all the time that they're logged on, the facial recognition technology randomly pops up, and they have to self-verify within a few seconds. Oh, my goodness. So we find out then, if it's not them sitting at the computer, or if, um, if there's somebody sitting there with them helping. So we have kind of, uh, you know, nipped that one in the That's bud. Because, brilliant. look, it, it's not to get people in trouble, um, although that might happen. It's to make sure that they really, we, we created this because we want people to learn and do differently and do better in the future. And that's not going to happen if they have their Uncle Louie sitting there taking the course for them. Or better yet, you turn so, the thing on and go in the other room and play your guitar. I mean... If you didn't have, right? I mean, you don't even need Uncle Louie. Just let the thing run. It's over. And you're like, done. That is brilliant. Boy, this is this is like the, the nanny state, but it's good. It's great. It's a way to hold people responsible for the thing that they're required to do. Yeah, it's it's a, it's an amazing idea, Deborah. I, I think that I just don't think those of us that, that live in the privileged world of having animals that are our family members and we, you know, talk to them and and take them on holidays and take them to the dog film festival. I don't think we realize how many thousands of people there are that have consciously or unconsciously caused great harm to animals. And I do think that other than a true sociopath, that people, if they're sensitized and can be taught empathy, that nothing makes them a better person than that moment of recognition of our oneness with, with animals, with pets. Right. I mean, that's the moment where make that goodness in yourself. Exactly. And, you know, just really quickly to go back to your point um, about prevention and humane education. So a a lot of cases that we see, really what they have done or haven't done for the animal really is born of a lack of knowledge or education. And so our course covers certain topics, as I said at the beginning, that you might not expect to see, such as grooming and and when discipline when cross when discipline can cross the line and become abuse. Yep. Some people truly believe that they are disciplining their animal when in fact what they are doing is committing abuse. Just like and they really don't know any differently. We used to think yeah, exactly. spare the rod, spoil the child. You beat your wife regularly. That's what wives get beaten and so do children. And you beat a dog to teach them who's boss. So that is exactly yeah. right. That's what Old they learned. Thinking. That's what they saw That's what right. doing. And regarding the grooming, you know, again, an animal control officer might go in. If you don't groom an animal, as we say in one of our videos, you know, it's not about looking good, you know, and it's about really preventing. If you don't, for example, clip your dog's toenails or your cat's toenails, at some point those nails grow so long they dig into the pads of the foot. Right, exactly. The animal can't walk, and then, they're, you know, their muscles are atrophying. They're getting pressure sores. You're not preventing um, tooth decay, and all of a sudden they've yep. got a horrible tooth decay, and it can literally die. Yep. So this is why we cover all the different things in responsible pet ownership, like confining your animal. You know, you let your animal run loose, and we say as a responsible owner, here's some of the things that can happen, aside from the fact that the animal 
can get run right. over all, all or things that, by somebody. That the rest of us definitely know anyway. We've run out of time, Deborah, but it's been wonderful talking to you. And obviously, anybody can look up BARC, B-A-R-C, education.org, and learn more about this and bring it to their own communities. Thank you so much for creating this and, and doing good for everybody. Well, thank you for having this nice chatting. Take care. And, and with you. Bye-bye. We'll be right back after this word with Liz Zeke Hueg and her shelter intervention program. This show is made possible in part by Precious Cat Litter, owned by Dr. Elsie, who has his own cats-only clinic in Colorado. He's devoted his life to inventing innovative litters for the health of all members of the family, and now he has broken new ground by creating a new dry and canned food for kitties called Clean Protein. Clean protein was inspired by the protein levels found in a cat's natural prey, and 90% of the protein in the clean protein kibble and cans is animal-based, not the plant-based ingredients in traditional dry cat food like grains, potato, vegetables, and fruits that are high in oxalate and lead to rapid metabolization, which actually increases your cat's hunger. The primary ingredients in Dr. Elsie's clean protein are the highest biological value proteins available. And the result is that your cat's appetite is satisfied longer without compromising her health. If you want to feed dry food to your cat, even as part of her diet, make the healthier choice. The proof is in the protein. I am back with Lizzie Kueg, who is part of OC Shelter Partners that's doing something really extraordinary in Southern California. San Clemente, and, and that whole area of, of Orange County. Liz, welcome to the show. I, I got such a sweet email from your husband, Eric, some time ago saying, my wife does something really amazing, and I think you should know about it. And I just thought that was great. He was really proud of you, and and I think he should be. And I think what you're doing is a, a great model for other towns. So talk a little bit about how you came to be part of a group that works to keep dogs and I'm sure cats, out of shelters in the first place. Yeah, so actually um, I founded the intervention program, Orange County Shelter Partners, and we work out of the Orange County Animal Shelter in Orange, and it's one of the largest intake shelters uh, this side of the Mississippi. It's a very wow. high-volume shelter. Yeah. Give us an and idea of we... numbers, Liz. Like, like some places have 500 animals a, a week. Do you have anything that bad? So I know um, when we started the program, uh, I believe it was 40,000 animals a year they were processing. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, And so we worked together really closely with the animal shelter, and they gave us a little office right behind the intake window. So we sit behind the intake window, and when people are coming to surrender their animals, um, they talk they talk to us and we try to offer them resources to help keep their animals. Um, I have, I have a really, one of my favorite stories. It was this, this, this woman came in and she was crying and she was holding her beloved little Chihuahua Kika. And she thought that Kika was dying of cancer and she could not afford her vet care. Kika had a huge lump on her stomach. And the only way that she could get this, this beloved pet of hers medical care was to surrender her to the shelter. And you could tell that her heart was just ripping out. So we got to talk to Kika's mom and we sent Kika to our vet and she had a hernia. So she had a fairly simple surgery. It was about $800. We paid for it and she got to keep her pet. 
and Kika's healthy, and they come and visit me about once nice. a month now. Really? Yeah. As a thank you. I mean, they're just so yeah. grateful. Yeah. Isn't that something? Well, you know, they're, they're, how, what amount of people are there because of medical care? Is that one of the biggest reasons for relinquishment that they know or think that there's a very costly medical situation and they can't afford it? So they're like, there's nothing I can do about this? Or is it, it that they can't afford to feed them? Of the number one reason that we're seeing right now in or in Orange County, the cities that we service, are landlord issues. Ooh. And we've actually been able to um, work with a lot of landlords where we can help pay a deposit for the pet so these families can keep their pet. Um, and we're also trying to work with some of the bigger companies, some of the bigger landowners and management companies to let them know how important it is for a lot of these families to be able to keep their pets, the lessons that they're teaching their kids, the next generation. It seems to me that having lived in Los Angeles and having been aware of how, I, I don't know if it still exists in LA, but many, 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 many rentals. I don't mean people's price, private homes. I'm talking about apartment rentals in you know, buildings with many units. Dog Pests weren't allowed, period. That's it. And it, it was shocking coming from New York where, you know, in fancy Park Avenue buildings and co-ops, there was, you know, a list of things you had to do. But for an average person in a normal building, you had your kids, you had your grandmother, you had your cats and dogs. It's, you know, sort of almost nobody's business. Is, is, do you know if this is a Southern California phenomenon to be kind of anti-animal in rental properties? Well, from where I sit right now, it certainly feels like that. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't, I don't have any statistics to back that up, but it does seem that a lot of the bigger management companies are leaning away from letting people have pets, and they're also doing a lot of um, breed-specific restrictions. So, um, you know, we're trying to work through that one case at a time. Wow. So you're doing that uh, almost like a legal, legal help paralegal help on the side of people coming in with animals that they just can't keep and they just want to hand them to you that very day. Right. Because they've run out of time. They've tried everything to keep right. their pet and they've just absolutely run out of time. And do you have people that ever come in that are homeless or is that like more drastic than, than other situations? Or do you have much homelessness in the area? I do. I do. I have a lot of um, I have a lot of regular homeless people that come down um, and they're actually some of my favorite people. I've learned a lot um, working with some of these favorite, with some of these um, homeless people. They take mm -hmm. better care of their animals than they do themselves. Absolutely. Uh, they live down on the riverbeds, and I have one in particular who I just I adore him. His name is Paul. It's very private, so I won't give out too much more information. But he has a an old shepherd mix named Jack, who is his whole life. And somehow in the midst of the chaos of his life, he remembers when Jack's rabies is due and he sends me texts that we need to go get no. Jack's rabies. And wow. he knows that Jack is allergic to certain kinds of foods. So he'll remind me Jack's running low on food. Remember, he can't have grain. And, you know, we've really wow. actually struck up quite a friendship. It's a, such an important safety net, Liz. When when the Dog Film Festival was in Los Angeles last year, one of the two beneficiaries was Downtown Dog Rescue, which is 100% a, 
aimed at the Skid Row people who are, as as a wonderful social worker who actually had, had a movie in the Dog Film Festival said, experiencing homelessness, which is a wonderful way of putting it. And some people, for any variety of reasons, continue to choose homelessness, whether it's because a shelter won't allow a pet in, privacy, mental health issues, uh, many issues that, that are mm-hmm. not yours and mine to deal with, but their whole world is their dog. It's their That's it's right. their only companion. It's their almost like a lifeline to their own humanity. So right. to be able to give them support is an extraordinary privilege, really, because they live in an really alternative u- universe, right? I mean, they're living in a parallel world to ours. It bears no resemblance to how we get up and live through our days. Absolutely. That's 100% true. And, and and with the, the nice climate that you have, just like I think Arizona as well, homelessness is more tolerable because you don't have the harsh winters. So yeah. it, it's a place to go if or to stay if that's how your life has turned out. Yeah. Do you ever have people that come in and want to adopt who are already homeless? Is that I, I actually never thought of that question until just now. You're sitting right we there do. at the intake window. I mean, do people come in and say... I want to adopt, and they say, what's your address? And they say, I don't have one? We do. I, I have seen that a lot, and it's funny because it's, um, I see a lot of women that are homeless that want a pit bull to um, give, give them some security. You know, it's, it's yes. actually pretty dangerous out there on the riverbeds. Yep. Um, so we do see that. But, I, I mean, I, I do also see them kind of taking care of each other. So, um even though we do our best and a, a lot of other groups help with the spaying and neutering, there are puppies born down there sometimes and they, um, you know, they share the wealth with their dogs down there. So, yeah. So it, it almost is a, a, a self-enclosed universe. What, what about the issue of people moving? I, I know that one of my dogs, when the very first Weimaraner that I adopted was from friends for pets in Los Angeles and as, as many breed rescues have, I call them spies, they're not really spies, they have people within the, the, the official shelter system who get in touch with the German wire-haired pointer people and the dachshund people and the whatever rescue groups when such a dog comes into the shelter. That's an intervention in and of itself, right? They go immediately to the, to the, the private breed rescue. But that dog, Lulu, had come from Orange County, now that I think about it, and had been relinquished by the owners who were a military family, and they were moving. So it was more mm-hmm. convenient for them to drop the dog at the Orange County shelter. I'm just realizing it was the very shelter where you do this intervention mm-hmm. than to find a way to have the dog move with them. Kind of, kind of shocking to those of us who can't imagine a six-year-old dog or a four-year-old dog. They're like, bye, moving now. How, how yeah. much of that do you have? And, and do you believe that that's really the reason? Or do you think it's kind of like a made-up reason and there's some other issue? It's funny that you say that um, because I, I kind of have this, this mantra that I, that I tell people when I talk about this program is it usually takes three reasons sitting in that room with people before they actually tell me the truth. So oh, interesting. Is, yeah. So usually by the third or fourth time, you know, 15, 20 minutes into these really gut, gut-wrenching gut sessions that I'm having with these people, I, I get the real reason. And the people that just really cannot keep their pets, I work very closely with a group of rescues. Some of them are breed-specific. Some of them are all breed rescues. Right. Um, we work very closely. And 
my, my goal that I do with these rescue partners who are amazing is to keep the animal from actually entering the shelter system. Yes. Yes. And it's really helpful for these rescues because a lot of times when you're going and pulling as a rescue or you're pulling a dog from the shelter, you don't know much about them. You know, you're really taking a chance, but when they take the dogs directly from me, I've spent time with the family. I've watched the dog interact with their family, their kids. I know about other pets, how they are in the car, what their shot records are, yes. what the, you know, I can give a very detailed history, what, which helps the rescues make the next home, their forever home much easier. That, that suits them better. And then they don't have returns where someone pulled a dog and the little bit of notes that are on the card at the shelter say good with cats, good with kids. And maybe the dog is good with neither. And now you've had a tragedy or a near tragedy. And now they've returned the dog to the shelter. I guess one of the things that that you do on behalf of those animals is by never having them enter a cage in the shelter. That's they right. don't have that problem of many breeds, many individual dogs of any breed who, quote unquote, don't shelter well. And they and right. the whole personality changes. Talk about yeah. what it does to some dogs who could be mellow, happy, go lucky, easygoing. And it'd be as if some of us will do better if somebody kidnaps us and puts us in a jail cell than others. Some of us right. will have a nervous breakdown. Some of us will turn mean and nasty and never trust anybody again. Other people are like, oh, good. Thank you for letting me out. Let's start a new life. But yeah. I don't know if that's the minority or the majority. I I would say, I mean, because, you know, I, I watch these dogs be walked away from their families and it's not easy on, on any breed. I mean, you see them, yep. you know, their tails are between their legs and they're having to drag them away. And even, I always say, even when I win and I get the dog into a safe place, that dog doesn't know that yet. It's still the worst day of his life. Yes, yes. It's horrifying. And if he happens to not have OC shelter partners and he's in the Orange County area and he winds up being dragged dragged, walked down a long, <laughs> wet, damp cement hallway between many cages of yelping, barking, furious, angry, adrenalized dogs. It's like, shoot me now. I, I can't bear this. Yeah. You no, know? I mean, it's just so hard on some dogs yeah. more than others. It's hard on all of them. Yeah. This idea of being shelter partners, this idea of having an interventionist at the door which you invented, you created it, you made it happen. Is this a model that you can help bring to other places, the idea? I, I wish you could go to like, I don't know, sheltering conferences or someplace where <laughs> so people all we, want to do well, Liz, but you're doing something so concrete. People want to volunteer. Know. They want to make a difference. Instead of walking one of these dogs that's already in the shelter, what if you could be at the door and go, no, 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 wait, let me help. There are options, there are resources. I think that's what a lot of people don't know. We never expected it to be um, as big as it is. Since we started, we're well over 1,300 animals have been diverted. Wow. Um, and, you know, when we started the program, we, we agreed to keep it fluid. So we've got lots, lots of different aspects of our program. We have the bonded pairs program. So um, when two come in that do enter the shelter on a day that we're not there, or um, we put up bonded pair programs to let the public know that there are two dogs there that are bonded, and you know it would be extremely horrible for them to be separated. Yes. And yes. we pay we pay the second 
adoption fee because oh it can my be kind God. of pricey. Wow, yeah. that's such a so, cool idea. It's been really cool. And then we have the um, bottle feeder kitten program because the shelter doesn't have resources to feed the tiny kittens every two, three, four hours. So the unfortunate reality is that when they're under two pounds, they were being euthanized. So we started a bottle feeding program and we take the bottle feeders that are being brought in from the public and we put them in foster homes, get them up to weight. We work with the kitten rescues and the cat rescues and we get them all adopted out. Wow. How cool is that? Often probably to the foster homes where they're a failure because there's just some kittens you can't, you can't, you can't let go of once, once they've got I'm their guilty. closets. Are you, are you a failed yes. foster mom yourself? I'm a failed foster and I have a kitty sitting right here to prove it. <laughs> oh my God. That's so cool. What, tell me about this cat. What's the color? What's the name? He's amazing. I mean, he's just, the bottle feeders are just so human centric and they're yes. such yes. love bugs. He really thinks I'm his mom. He's, white and orange and my daughter named him bb8 from star wars <laughs> well isn't that cool what a lucky boy of all the all the all the laps he could wind up and he winds up in the, in the lap of an absolute angel well i think oh. that I'm, I'm hoping that this can inspire other people to get in touch with you at oc shelter partners i'll have a link to your your shelter intervention program site. that would be great because there's people at shelters all across the country that want to volunteer. And if all they can do is go in and walk dogs, you know, intermittently, I mean, that's good. Anything's good. All volunteers yes, yes. is good. It's great for the staff. It's great for the animals. But if they could, if, if somebody had your foresight of saying, well, what if just on the busiest days of the week, the busiest inter, you know, the busiest relinquishment days, we just sat there and said, tell me your story. Let me see how I can help. Even if yeah. you didn't have the help in place, you could be that kind person who says, I feel your pain. Let me help you find a way to not have that animal cross this threshold because mm -hmm. it changes everything. And the person who walks away, as hard as it is on the dog with the tail between his legs, that person winds up with their tail between their legs for a long, long time. Right. And as you know, if there's kids in that family, it's devastating. Yes, yeah, someone, someone just gave away their sibling. You know, put their sibling right. in jail for doing nothing wrong. So yeah. I think it's I think it's great what you're doing. Uh, the Dog Film Festival was going to come to Orange County and be part of Surf Dog Surf City. It didn't work out this year, but we'll see what happens for next year. I, I salute what you're doing, Liz. Thank and you I, and so I think much. It's just tremendous, and how great that your husband too salutes you and says, "Somebody, I know. tell the world how cool <laughs> my wife is." And and it's yeah. true, you are. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. And you, Liz. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you all for being here. Kiss those kitties. Hug your pooches. And uh, maybe there's some place for you to fit in to do good at your local shelter or rescue somewhere in your community. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.